tell you would be deplorable and hated by the world. Uh, that would be obvious. There's a lot of things in Scripture that the world hates. But it kind of saddens me to say uh, there are many in the church body, actually brothers and sisters even, that would not like these two verses. Matter of fact, they would rather not to ever talk about them. And sometimes I think they would rather that it wouldn't even be in Scripture, that it wouldn't be in their Bibles, that they could just cast them out and let it be. Matter of fact, I think they could probably take the whole chapter 9 and take out of the Bible because it is about an absolute sovereign God. And uh, whenever I think about that, this is uh, rather humbling to be at probably one of the most weightier, if not the weightiest, difficult teaching that is in all the Bible. And that's quite a statement to make, knowing how many verses there are in the Bible. And to say that is quite bold, but I think I can probably say it uh, without any... Uh, due to it, I would say that what Paul is giving here is the greatest ultimate answer in all the Bible for the existence of evil, but also why God judges sin and evil when in fact He is absolutely sovereign. And that's what we have established in Romans 9. We didn't establish it. God did. And I am not on some hobby horse uh, just going on the sovereignty of God and election and predestination. Those words are biblical. They're in the Bible. And we have seen in our study they're in there frequently all throughout the whole Bible. It just happens to be where we're at. We're in Romans 9. But I can't think of a better text to be on today than this one right here because it will give you great assurance if you belong to Christ. It will give you a bold confidence knowing who God really is. And I will say right up front here, this is the sunum bonum of what the Christian life is for now and all into eternity. And we can wrap it up in this. You were made to know the glory of God. That is why you're here on earth. That's why you are here in church. That's why you do what you do throughout every day of the week. And that's why you, in eternity, uh, is what it's all about. We will know the riches of the glory of God. We already do. But we have just started. We have just come out of the womb. We have got a long way to go. And it's an incredible thought. So if you can, try to stay with me on these two verses. I know if you've never read these or heard them, they will be quite offensive. Because they are offensive to the natural man. But we are not here to be entertained just by nice thoughts of who God is or nice thoughts of how the world is and such. We are here to get the very Word of God. And this is very weighty. So if you haven't been in Romans 9 or haven't been in there lately, 
it's a good one to get into because what it does, it gives the answer of why God faults or blames or judges or pours out His wrath while He's absolutely sovereign. The question has already been asked. Why does He still find fault then? And that's where we were at last week and we went on to explain it. So it said in verse 19, why does He still find fault if He shows mercy on whom He wants to show mercy and He also shows wrath or judgment on those whom He pours that out upon? And I know that's heavy. And it's like saying, well then, if He's the one that chooses them, then what is it that He can blame? Because He made them that way. That's what a question would be asked. That's our uh, third question in this chapter. Another one is, God just in doing this. That's found in verse 14. He answers that and He uses Moses and Pharaoh. And before that, it was about, okay, has the Word of God been failing then? Does that mean His promises won't come true? If He's not going to uh, save all of Israel? And He gives an answer to that. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's hard, isn't it? Uh, and then He explained what that was all about. Uh, so, we have the three questions, and now what we're doing in our text today is amplifying that and giving even, uh, I hate to say, a better answer because we've seen it, the potter and the clay. What does that mean? He's sovereign over what He makes, right? And He can do what He wants. Is everybody in agreement with that? I think even a kindergartner could answer that if they've heard any teaching about God at all. Can God do whatever He wants? And they will say, yes, Daddy, right? Okay, why is it that that little short answer doesn't stick when it comes to salvation? Why is it all of a sudden it changes? Well, people do that. The Bible doesn't. It stays firm with what it's saying. So, uh, why is there wrath if no one resists His will? That's what they're saying. They're asking that. If He's in charge, then He's a judge. He can do whatever He wants. He doesn't have to throw them away. Well, the question is, if God passed over most of Israel and chose a remnant, okay, did, did He do that? Well, Paul said He did. All in Romans 9, 10, 11, that's what His whole premise is about. And it's about the justice of God in being able to do that. He can do it because He is God. And so they say, okay, is God righteous in doing this? How can this be righteous? Well, you remember he said, Paul said, if he chooses Jacob and Esau, he is, and he chooses Jacob and not Esau, I'm sorry, he is actually giving mercy and grace to him, but another one he is passing over. If he chooses to give mercy to Pharaoh and harden the heart... Or, Mercy to Moses. Man, can I get this right? This is getting almost like our Old Testament study whenever it comes to names. Every time I get to names, I just goof them all up. So we got Moses, he gives what? Mercy. And Pharaoh, he hardens. He does not, or he, he does not elect Pharaoh. He passes over him. But the deal is, they're all sinful. 
they're all sinners. The question is, why would he choose anybody? That's the whole premise. If you get how sinful man really is, then you can understand why he does what he does and, and what he says in chapter 9. Because through three chapters, he showed how sinful man is. They're all sinful. Everybody. Even a baby is sinful. Even in the womb. Born in sin. It's a sin nature. And we think, oh, it's just a little sin. No, little, no, no such thing as little sins to God. We are evil and wicked. Every person. But he decides to choose Jacob. He decides to choose Moses. He decided to choose Abraham. Isaac. He chose Paul, who resisted his will completely, killing Christians, persecuting them. So he is righteous in judging because he's God. Paul is answering that. In verse 20, after the question is asked, Paul says, Shut up, old man. That's my translation, but it's... That's the idea of what it is. They said he still finds fault. Why? For who resists his will? And then he comes back, on the contrary. Who are you, oh little man, who answers back to God? And I think that is separating us from God in the sense that he is holy and man is not. And if you are holy, it's because you are in Jesus Christ and it's all because of His work. Who are you, old man? Be quiet. And you say, is that the answer? Well, in a way it is, but He doesn't really give it there, but He kind of does when He gets into the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And then He gets into the potter and the clay. The molder, the potter, he can do whatever he wants with that pot as it spins around and he makes it however he wants. The, the clay can't do anything. It's the potter who does it. So that's what he's established. And is anybody obligating God to do what they want? No. Mankind cannot put an obligation upon God. We must understand how big He is, how great our God is, as we say, and how little man really is. The ultimate answer, or the question of this answer here, uh, of this question that we're getting, we will, I think, see. And I think by the time of the end of our message, we should be able to see it clearly. As much as we can, this side of heaven... It'll take an eternity to understand this, but this is one of the most glorious passages in all of the Bible. It's about glory. That's really what it is. Focus on God. Don't focus on the ones who are not His or the ones who are His. Focus on Him. Whatever we, way we may not fully understand about the way God works in this world here, one thing is clear. And it's very wonderful, and it's found in verse 23. His ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose. A lot of people say, I don't understand why I'm here for. What, what, what is the deal? Why are we still here? Why? What, what am I to do in this world? What, what am I all about? Right? I mean, that's about the most basic question 
that any person should be asking. If I was an unbeliever, that's one of the that'd be the first question. What am I here for? I mean, it makes no sense sometimes. Why am I here? Is it, I must be an accident. Well, it can't be an accident. There had to be a creator. There is a cause of everything that happens. God is the cause. So, the ultimate purpose, and as verse 22 says, in all His wrath and in all His power, and then verse 23, in all His mercy, is this. What is it? To make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. This is what you are. You are a clay pot. You're a vessel. You're a vessel to be used by God. He made you the way that He wanted. A vessel of mercy prepared when? Before the creation of the world. Why? For His glory. To see and savor His glory. That is to know the riches, catch that, of the glory of God. Not just the glory of God, but the riches, everything that's behind that. It'll take an eternity, but it will keep it'll grow in leaps and bounds all throughout eternity. And even here today we go from one level of glory to another level of glory as we discover things about God that we never knew before. And perhaps you're sitting here today saying, I've never been through Romans 9, and I'm not so sure about it, but if this is really what the Bible is saying, what God is saying, I'm overwhelmed. I have to see God in a much different way. And yes, we need to see Him every day in a bigger way than we've seen Him before. He never changes, but we change. That's good. Open your heart this morning to the very Word of God and to the wonders that we're going to open up in this verse or two. I want you to ponder with me as I've been pondering all week about this passage. I've pondered it for 40 years and it gets fresh every day. It's amazing. I want you to know this, and I'm going to repeat it all throughout the message. Folks, listen. We were made to know the riches of the glory of God. That's why you're made. I think that's tremendous, great news. Let's read the text. Let's say, let's see what God says. You've heard my words But that doesn't count if it's not aligning up with what we read here today. Romans 9, verse 22, after he said he's the potter and the clay and he makes one for honorable use and another for a dishonorable use. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Let's pray. Father, great God, 
help us to see this text in the way that it was written. Not in the way that I desire it to be, but the way you have designed all of your creation and your whole plan that is grand throughout all the ages to eternity. Lord, whatever preconceived ideas I have, pray that we take those away and we just get your pure word. By looking at your word, understanding something so deep that it will make us wonder, what does this really mean? But at the same time, you mean for us to understand it. So by the Holy Spirit, help us to know this and to know the riches of the glory of God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Romans 9, verse 22 and 23. We have it in two parts, vessels of wrath in 22 and in 23. Vessels of mercy. And that's really where we're going to wind up at. No matter how offensive this may be to the natural man, the grand object of it all is that God is glory. And we were designed to take that in, to know those riches. So he starts off after talking about the potter and the clay. What if God? We have a uh, little word there, two-letter word, if. This is an open-ended question. It's kind of interesting because kind of goes against the grammar rules. The sentence starts with really, uh, it's called a dependent clause. So if you are English students, and I don't know if there's anybody here that's English students, and there might be, uh, you know that a, a dependent clause is really followed up with a major clause. In this case, it doesn't. It kind of is stops. It just is left hanging. The first part is, uh, it says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And of course He has the 24, and uh, He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. What if God did this? What if God was really willing to demonstrate His wrath? What if God was willing to do that? We can pretty well fill in the blank here. You read the verse and you follow it up with a completion. We need a completion there since the sentence just kind of breaks off. Uh, and you'll see the word willing if God, although willing, or wills, or maybe even better for your understanding, willing is good. Uh, it could be desires. God desires. If God desired, okay, and with that thought it might help us, what if God desired to show His, what? Wrath? That's a key word. Or you have power? That's another key word, right? Now mercy is going to be another one when we get to the next verse. Wrath, power, 
mercy? What if God desires to show His wrath and power? And you can say, okay, what if? You would say, well then, and complete that out, right? That's why I say the sentence breaks off there. You have this dependent clause and uh, there's not anything there that's the major clause saying, okay, then, what if, then? And we'll, we'll get to that. It's wrath and power, right? What he's saying, what is the if, then, or what, then? Well, if that be the case, there can be no objection. There is no legitimate objection to this that can be raised of the statement that's just been made. The potter and the clay and then he comes in. What if God wants to show off His wrath? I know, that's heavy, isn't it? God wants to show His wrath. Why would He want to do that? And that's what we're going to get to today. So hang on with it. Why would God want to show His wrath? Sounds bad. Sounds like He's unloving. He's not unloving at all, but what if God did that, right? What right do I have, or you have, or anybody else has to object to that? What if God... Okay, I cannot ask that question. Does God have a right to display His wrath? Does He? Does God have a right to display His power? Well, I will tell you, just think about the whole Bible. Has He displayed His wrath and power throughout the Old Testament? Whenever He told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of life, He was saying that they would die. Well, they disobeyed Him. Adam disobeyed deliberately and God brought upon sin. And so ever since then, the world has never been the same like it was in the garden. And what you have is it's over and over. That right there is what it did. To, or he judged Adam and Eve. They did die. Many, many years later, but they died. Look what happened to the world. Look at the earth. Look all throughout history, of, let's say through the Old Testament, what about the prophets who for years and years, hundreds of years, God tells them what will happen if they don't obey? And they are terribly sinful. How about Noah and the flood? Noah and his family got into the ark. Nobody else did. There was judgment made. Was, did God's judgment, was it put on display? Yeah. His wrath was put on display right there, wasn't it? You can't deny that. Although I think the world would like to. And so therefore they say, oh, there's no such thing as a Noah and Ark. Are you kidding me? Uh, then you, you move all through the prophets. They do the same thing. You look in the New Testament. Look in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. You get judgment from 6 through 19. Those particular chapters are showing how God is unleashing His wrath. This is to come. And then to tie it all off, you have Christ coming back to earth, defeating all the armies of the world in complete victory. He destroys them. 
There's a great white throne judgment. So we have seen it. We will see it. It continues on today, but at the same time, I will tell you, he is very patient. You can say, why does he let all this go on and what's happening in, in our world today? Why is he letting that happen? Because he's patient. Where do you get that at? In our text today. He's very patient with them. Very patient. God is patience. What does he give to the Christians? Love, joy, peace, patience. You can say, man, I don't show that fruit off very good. I know. Sometimes we blow it, don't we? But if you are of the Holy Spirit, you have that. Just use it. Use that fruit. Bear it. Well, what do we have here? God has a right to display His holy justice, doesn't He? He's done it. God has a right to put His glory on display. You can say, you mean His justice is part of His glory? Yes. Is justice a part of God? Absolutely. Tremendously a part of God. It's an amazing thing. God's glory is put on display because that if you take His justice and His judgment, that is as much as an element of all the other characteristics of God. And everybody likes to talk about the love of God. Is that His nature? Absolutely. Does He put it on display? Yes, all the time. We are objects of His grace and mercy and His love, aren't we? We are trophies of God, of His grace. You know, it's interesting that God was willing, God is willing to do this because He's done it, what if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath, He's willing, He desires it, He wants to, He wishes it, He strongly wants to do it, and will God always do His will? Yes, He will. Uh, he greatly desires to do this. That's the idea. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath, He greatly desires to do it. Hang on with that though. God wants to show His wrath. And I know I am really going out on a limb here just stopping with that because I know some of you, your heads are spinning and you're going, I can't believe I'm in this church and I'm hearing this. <laughs> We're just reading what God said. I, I didn't write this, right? I'm just trying to make it a little clearer to us and we can all be in agreement with it. God wants to show His wrath. Well, why is that? Because He wants to reveal Himself. He wants to show that He is a just God. It's a theological answer that we have. He wants to manifest His wrath, His judgment. He wants to manifest His holy anger. He wants to put on display His vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not yours. It's not mine. But He has vengeance. And He has the right to be angry. He's angry at sin. He's angry at sinners every day. That's what the Bible says. So, here's what I want you to listen to real quick. And we're going to build on it. And He can say, well, why is sin here? If God is really sovereign, why would He have even permitted sin to happen? I mean, that is a really good question, isn't it? Have you often wondered that? How about in your early days of your Christian walk, or even before you became a Christian? So why is there such evil? Why is it? 
If God is really God, wouldn't He just not ever let it happen in the first place and we're all on the same plane like Adam and Eve and we're innocent? God didn't make it that way. There's sin. Are, are you saying that sin just slipped in then? And He didn't know it? He goes, oh my, wow, what am I going to do now? Either we have a God who has controlled this. By the way, God is in no way connected with sin. He never makes anybody sin. He never tempts them to sin. We can never blame God and say, well, God made me do it. Actually, Adam did that. And, and how many of us have maybe done it somewhere along the line? Adam said, uh, the woman made me do it. But God gave the woman to Adam. And if God knew that, He wouldn't have given the woman to Adam, Right? Because she made me sin. Well, that's not true. Uh, He disobeyed God. He knew what the word was. Okay, so. He manifests His judgment, His anger, His vengeance, His justice because He wants to show His glory. So He can say, what about the sin then thing? What is that? What's it all about? Why is it here? Well, I will tell you, the entrance of sin is necessary. That is hard for a human to say. And it's offensive not only to the unbelieving world, it's offensive to many Christians, and I would say probably the biggest percentage of them. It shouldn't be offensive, but it is. It's necessary so that God could manifest His wrath, His judgment, His anger, His justice. And all of those are every bit of His character as love, mercy, grace, kindness, forgiveness. Think of all of those. Can you put justice to be equal with love? Yeah, you do. Because you look at the cross and you get the perfect balance. Justice and mercy met at the cross. Christ. Those attributes had to be done. If He didn't have that, then sin wouldn't have been taken care of. And you still say, well, why is it here? We already answered it. Because God is able to manifest His wrath. You see, if you don't have wrath, you don't have justice, then you'll never know those. You would only know God and love. And even at that, I don't think love would be. And today we're going to get into this and we're going to invite somebody from the 1700s in here today to tell us and explain to us a little bit further why there is sin and why He has this kind of justice to be done on those vessels So we'll get to that. We'll build on it. But have you gotten the idea a little bit? Here we go. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath, to make His power known, let's let's use that. God wants to make His power known. This is the word dunamis, or what? Dynamite. That's the kind of power, but much bigger than dynamite. Take all the sticks of dynamite that there is in the world and it can't even compare to God's power. 
God desires to make His power known. Can we all say yes to that? He's done it. He showed it in the Old Testament. He showed it by creation. By the way, He showed it in our own lives in salvation. He recreated you. He gave you and made you a new creation. The power is to be known. How does He do that? Well, He shows His power. Get this, and hang on with it for a moment. He shows His power in sin. He does not sin, cannot sin. It's impossible. But first of all, in sin means that He judges sin. If you look at what we just talked about in the Old Testament, the fiery judgments of God that's made there and on all the nations. And then Israel, He made it at the flood. And we see all of that and then all the curses. And then you look in the Revelation and then Christ coming back and establishing His eternal and glorious kingdom. God wishes, desires, is willing to show His power. Is there any question with that? You can say, I, can, I have to agree with that because it says it. Okay, that's all we need. But let's, let's go on. Let's, let's move on this. We see His power no greater way than whenever He conquers sin and judgment. And then on the, on the other side, in salvation, right? Uh, wow, what a way to show power. Now, this word power that's here in our verse 22, He wants to make His power known, right? If you go back to verse 17... He's using Moses, and he's saying he has mercy on him. Matter of fact, verse 16 is the, the big stinger too to everybody. Oh, they, they resist this passage, but it's here. So then it does not depend on the man who wills. It's not the free will of man or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then he says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That's why God did it. There's certain people that God raises up to be leaders. Any leader that's ever been here, the only reason they got that was God gave it to them. You can say all those evil rulers, you know, God gave them, gave them that position. Otherwise, if He didn't want them to be there, would He, would he have the power to say, nope, nope, not you. Absolutely has the power to do that, doesn't he? He said, why would he give such evil rulers? Well, most uh, of rulers in all the world throughout history, if you really look at history, you'll find how evil they are. They're all sinners. Some of them are believers, but it's very, very rare, isn't it? Very rare. But we have governments and leaders mainly for protection of us. That's the main reason. That's what Romans 14 talks about. Romans 13. Uh, but going back to our text before I lose it here, verse 17 is focusing on the power of God, isn't it? I demonstrated my power in you. I brought you up. And so, you know, I know Pharaoh thought he did it on his own. I know all rulers think that they did it, how great they are. And that's the problem. They're very prideful, aren't they? Uh, there are some that are humbled, but it's extremely rare. But he raises them all up, good or bad or indifferent. Brings them all up. Every king that Israel had, same thing there. It was all God did it, and even the nations. 
So knowing that, and it says that in Acts, he's the one who makes the boundaries, he's the one who is controlling, he's the one that will give these leaders there. So he did it to him. And he demonstrated his power through Pharaoh, who was the, the Egyptian empire at that time, was the country, the nation, the empire of the world. And he gave him in that high position. Now with that knowing, that he also worked his power as he brought on the ten plates. And he showed his power against Pharaoh. And that's where our next phrase comes in. He demonstrated to make his power known. He endured with much patience vessels of wrath. With much patience. How does God do this? By the way, God has the power to make even sin to glorify His name. And He does it in the story of Moses and Pharaoh. He has overturned sin. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful display of power that He can convert a sinner. You see, everybody is a sinner. Moses was as much a sinner as Pharaoh. And God said, I can have mercy and compassion on him. Did you know Moses was a murderer? Pharaoh was a murderer. Pharaoh was a very sinful man. But Moses was on the same plane. He was a sinner. You see, we all are. He said, well, he was a better person than Pharaoh, or he was from the nation of Israel. What difference does that make? How good you are, because no man is good. And if we, if we get on that level, then all the rest of this starts to make sense. See, that's the problem. Most Christians cannot understand the total depravity of man and how it affects everything. Look out in the world. Look at the weeds that you have out there in the grass. <laughs> out there in your flowers. I mean, just little things like that. And then it starts mounting and, and we really see our sinful hearts. What we struggle with. We fail. Adam, Abraham, where did he come from? Paganism. He was worshiping idols, idols, idolatry. Uh, also, Paul, what was his desire? Persecute Christians. So on his way to Damascus, God and His power stopped him, knocked him off his horse, blinded him. Was that the will of Paul? No way. Paul became saved because God chose him. Moses became saved because God chose him. Pharaoh was not saved because God did not save him, but they were all sinners. Does he have the right to take out of that lump of clay one for good use, for use and another one he just doesn't use them in an honorable way. Can he do that? Well, yeah, he can. He endures. He endures. He endures mortals until old age for the most part. Most of them get into the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. And he endures the worst of wickedness. We've seen some awful wicked things in the last two years. It will get worse. We will see things we can't believe. We're already seeing those, aren't we? And we'll see it more and more. And you say, God, what are you doing? Won't you display your power and your wrath right now? And he says, I'm patient. 
I'm patient. He's glorifying his patience right now. Do you know that? He's a God of patience. I'm so glad he is. He sure was patient with me and he still is. He just ought to knock me off my horse. I don't have a horse. Just knock me to the ground and just lay there and this kind of melt into the dust and lower than the dust and then that's it. But no, he has patience with everybody. Some that he saves, some he doesn't, but he endures this. And eventually he brings it forth in his condemnation. And he will be glorified when he condemns all the people who hate him. And he will be glorified in that. Did you know he's glorified in his wrath? He is glorified in his power, and I know that's hard to swallow. It's what the Bible says, not just in Romans 9, but all through. Have we missed that part of God? This is why we have. What would happen if we didn't have the wrath of God? What if we had universalism where everybody goes to heaven? You know, if it was our will to make this, that's what we would have done. And never would there have been sin, and we all are in heaven for eternity. Everything is perfect. Well, that's human thinking. God's thinking is much higher than ours. And it's certainly showing it in this text, isn't it? Well, let's move on. Uh, Long-suffering there, a lot of times. Did you know the Pharaoh? Here's the example. The Pharaoh received ten plagues. All of Egypt did. Ten plagues. You know, only one would have done the trick. Two, three. No, God shows His patience on this vessel of wrath prepared beforehand for glory. No, no. Prepared beforehand for what? Destruction. But God gets glory in that. Hang on with it. We'll come back and we'll answer that. You see, Pharaoh never did repent. And what did he show? Pharaoh demonstrated that he was a sinner. All are. He also demonstrated that he was not going to repent. Even though he thought he was going to, and then, no. He went back. He hardened himself. God hardened him. God takes his grace or his, he takes his mercy away, if he had mercy on him, and lets him be the way that he really is. What happens whenever God takes his power? or takes His mercy or grace from mankind. They do Romans 1. Always. And they, they do their homosexuality and their lesbianism. They do their awful deeds of darkness. And they're all evil. The plagues didn't get His attention. God hardened Him. Pharaoh hardened his heart, but God hardened him. He just made it that much harder. Pharaoh wanted his own way, and he liked it that way. So, all the way through here, 
we're, we're taking this 22 and applying it to where we have been. Remember, it's context, context, context. The context is Moses and Pharaoh. And 22 is about Pharaoh or anybody that is like Pharaoh. All who are hardened, all who hate God. And who is that? Everybody. It's going to take something special be delivered out of that particular situation. And so he finishes up the verse with that horrible, awesome sounding word prepared for destruction. I swallow. This is uh, serious stuff. I don't take it lightly. The wicked are fitted for destruction. They are fitted for destruction by their sins. See, He didn't make them sin. They sinned. Sin came into the world, but people sin. The nature is that. That's what they do. They are sinners. And so they sin. And so the vessels of wrath here are fit for destruction. They will receive the anger of a holy God. They are object of of God's fiery judgment. The word prepared here, um, there's a passive participle. They're prepared or fitted for destruction. Uh, The word is kartartizo, and it means to fit or to make. Uh, sometimes it can mean to mend, to mend a broken bone. It's whatever their, what position they're in. It's they're fitted for that. In this way, it's taken in a negative sense. They're prepared for that. It isn't that God made them sinners, and I want you to understand that it is not saying that He did not make anybody sinners. It's that they are sinners. You have to leave it with that. That's where it starts. God, in displaying His holy wrath, fits them for destruction. A lot of it is because of the situation they're in. But God has to judge. He has to bring condemnation on sin. If Christ did not pay for their sins, if they didn't trust in the Christ and did not repent, they are fitted for destruction. It's the fit that they are in. It's the mold that they're in. God displays His holy wrath and brings destruction on them. God is not specifically seen here in this text as preordaining the destruction It's actually a word that would be, it's passive in that sense, but it can be no other than God who is in the context here. So that's the idea. Now, what I want you to do is to follow along with, we need some help here. We're getting into some real depth, right? Have I lost anybody yet? Okay, 
Jonathan Edwards brings on a lot of help for me on this text. And the view of the vessels of wrath. I want to give you a taste, the depth of the complexity of Edwards' seriousness of his effort here to tackle one of the hardest questions that it can ever be made. Are you guys ready? Let's, uh, let's see what's going on here. I've got three paragraphs, and your three paragraphs are on your bulletin, and I put them in a Type 8 printing. Can you read 8? <laughs> okay. I'll read it with you. Just to show you I'm not cheating, I actually have mine in 11 here, but I want to read it here. Because there's more here in this paragraph than in mine. I cut it off on the first one. Okay, I want you to, to go with what we have said. I want you to think and think hard. You say, Jonathan Edwards, I can't think that hard. Yes, you can. Jonathan Edwards tried to get it. He was an intellectual. He was the greatest philosopher that America has ever had. So is that good enough? He was a Puritan, and he wrote some of the greatest works in all of American history. And you'll get secular historians, secular teachers in colleges, universities, will say that. They don't agree with him, but they say his writings are significant. Okay, you ready? Here we go. It is a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. Now, would you guys agree with that? It's proper and it's excellent for infinite glory to shine forth. You got that? Can you, can you have any problem with that? Of course not. And for the same reason, it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. Would you like to see all of God's glory or just a little bit of it? Moses saw the backside of God's glory. He said, show me your glory. And God said, okay, I really can't show you my full glory, um, but I'll show you that. Get in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by you. And so he was able to see a, a, a glimpse of God's glory. And Moses saw enough there, but don't you think, oh, I wish I could see it all. If, if we went to heaven and you found out all you're seeing is the same glory that you see in Scripture, are you going to be disappointed? Yes. By the way, if you see a little bit of His mercy now, and you're seeing more and more, and mercies are new every day, right? But it, He's not done with His mercy yet. You see, He's not done with His grace. See, there's a future grace that is left in the heavens for us. That's our inheritance. Do you want to see it all? Amen. And it's going to take eternity to see it because you can't handle it all and as you'll get more and more and more and you'll never get bored. Not one moment will you ever be bored because we won't even go to sleep there. We will constantly see His glory and He'll just keep revealing more. Now, with that, do you want complete glory of God? Well, here's what it is. That is, that all parts of the glory should shine forth. Or do you just want some and not all of it? That every beauty should be proportionally effulgent, effulgent or radiant. That the beholder, that would be us, 
may have a proper notion of God. You see where he's getting at now? With the text that we've been at, he's now going to go. Uh, you want to be able to see everything, right? Don't you want to have a proper notion of God? Is Edwards that hard so far? Okay, here we go. Guys, you're getting deep, deep, deep theology today from God's Word and from somebody here that can really teach the church. Jonathan Edwards. It is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifested and another not at all. Does that make sense? It's not proper that one glory be standing out where we see God's love and His grace, but we see just barely a little bit of His glory and His judgment. Edwards is saying, no, God wants to show it all. It is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifest and another not at all, for then the effulgence or the radiance would not answer the reality. What's true of God? For the same reason, it is not proper that one should be manifested exceedingly and another one but very little. That's the idea. It's highly proper that the effulgent glory of God should answer His real excellency, that the splendor should be answerable to the real and essential glory for the same reason that it is proper and excellent for God to glory Himself at all. Okay. Uh, those last few I'm not going to comment on. Don't worry about it. It's really saying what we already understood. God makes all of His attributes equal in proportion. This is heavy. Second paragraph. You ready? Thus, it is necessary that God's awful majesty... It is necessary. Necessary for what? His authority and His dreadful greatness, justice and holiness should be manifested. Would you say that it is necessary? Knowing what we have read here, well, if God made it to be that way, yes. Well, here we go. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed. Oh, wow. So that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect if He didn't do that, if He doesn't show His wrath, then it's imperfect. His glory is imperfect to us, both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as the others do, and also the glory of His goodness and love and holiness would be faint without them. His judgment, wrath. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all. They could hardly even shine. We would get just a glimpse of God. When you see God, don't you want to see the whole thing? If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, if that's not right, and that's what old man is doing, right? There could be no manifestation of God's holiness in hatred of sin. Wow. Or in showing any preference in His providence of godliness before it. He preferred you. If you are His, He preferred you. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness. If there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. So if we were all, if there was never ever sin, here's the deal. You would never understand God's righteousness, His holiness, His justice, his wrath. And that is part of who God is. 
We would never know that. We would never understand grace. Would we? Because we wouldn't ever have to realize that we are sinners and where He brought us from. You see, this is this opening up something? Why did God, we can say permit sin, but it's more than permit, isn't it? Yeah. How much, this is the third paragraph, right? Did I finish that? Yes. Second paragraph? How much happiness soever He bestowed, his, it, no matter how much happiness He would give us, okay, His goodness would not be so much prized and admired. We wouldn't know His goodness if we never saw how bad things were in our lives and in this earth. And the sense of it is not so great as we have elsewhere shown. We, we, don't, we little consider, we don't consider much, how much the sense of good is heightened, look at this, by the sense of evil. Do you guys get that? Do you know what he's saying there? We don't consider how much the sense of good is brought up by the sense of evil. We see the difference between good and evil, don't we? Both moral and natural. And as it is necessary that there should be evil because the display of the glory of God could not but be imperfect and incomplete without it. He wants it to be complete to us. He doesn't want to cheat us, so He's going to show what that is. And evil is necessary in order for the highest happiness of the creature and the completeness of that communication of God for which He made the world because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God. Do you guys want to be happy? Do you want to be beyond happy that you've known here? A happy in a way that it, it never stops? It, never, it just gets better and better. Do you want that? Of course. Of course you do. In the sense of His love. And if the knowledge of Him be imperfect, do you, want, do you want to have imperfect knowledge of God? The happiness of the creature must be proportionably imperfect and the happiness of the creature would be imperfect upon another account also. We would be imperfect if He doesn't show all His glory. Do you get that? And we're headed for glory. We would be imperfect For as we have said, the sense of good is comparatively dull and flat without the knowledge of evil. And so therefore God is in control. It wasn't that it just happened by accident and God said, oh, a mistake, I missed that. Well, God, you're not God then. I want a God who's absolutely sovereign even over sin. And He is. Is His will as this has been brought forth. He let sin enter to glorify Himself. Why is there sin? Because He wants to be glorified. You say, well, that's awful selfish of Him. No. Because if He didn't show His... He's the only one. It sounds like bragging, doesn't it? He's the only one that can brag. You know what we do here when we come here on Sundays? We come here to, what do I always say? To glorify God. Because He's the only one worthy to do this. And if we didn't do it, there would be something lacking in us. 
because it is absolute true that he's the glorious one. How about he's God and he says, oh no, don't give me any pr- It's okay. <laughs> you know, really, I'm not that good. Is that what we want him to say? No, we want to see so much glory. We say, we give you all the praise and glory. That's what the Bible always says, doesn't it? He is not some kind of a God up there just trying to get his own jollies by getting glory from people and making that happen. He wants to share the glory and he says, I want you to see the riches of the glory. I want you to experience it. The entrance of sin into the world. This is John MacArthur. Now I used Jonathan Edwards. Here's John MacArthur. I ran out of space in the bulletin. (laughs) This is not very long. This is basically a sentence or two. The entrance of sin into the world was necessary so that God could manifest His wrath and His judgment and His holy anger and His vengeance and His justice because that is as much an element of God's nature as any other thing in His nature. That sounds like Edwards, 300 years removed. People say this, Why did God allow sin? God allowed sin in order that He might display His holy wrath. If there's no sin... There is no wrath. If there is no wrath, there's no revelation of the very fullness of the glory of God. That's what Jonathan Edwards was simply saying. That is what verses 22 and 23 are saying. I know, you won't hear this much of any other churches today. If I got an opportunity to go into a church and to preach a text. You know what I would love to preach on? This right here. Because it's the ultimate will of God. As we go into verse 23 now, here is what it's really all about. You say, well, you mean it's, it's the purpose of God to damn and condemn people, right? No, we're not saying that. Now, He's willing to do that. He desires to do that because He's not going to let sinners in heaven. He's going to let sinners who've been redeemed, who believe in Him, trust in Him, who have thrown their whole selves on Him that He allows to come in to His heaven. Now, we are getting near the end, but this is the best part, folks, and this is really where I want to get to. It's to make known the riches of His glory. That is what all of this is about. Even what He did in verse 22 that we just spoke about for the last 50 minutes. Now here's verse 23. You know what it starts off with? In, in here, my version says, and He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon the vessels of mercy. I, I like to think of it this way. I think of his voice that had it this way. In order that, in order that, this is the reason, this is the goal, this is God's glory that we want to be able to get to. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy God. Yes. Because we glorify Him. He is joy. It's all good for us to glorify God. You know what God's chief end is for Himself? Glory. He's already there. But He wants to share it. Jesus said in John 17... I want them to see my glory. 
This is the turnline. I can't wait to see it. Grand Canyon, boy, what a view. Great Smoky Mountains. How about uh, Teton? All the natural wonders, Niagara Falls. Wrap all those up. Keep the, all the, the seven great falls, all, all everything all across the world, and it can't even make a dent to the glory of God. And you'd like, and in your lifetime, you've probably not seen all the wonders of the world, have you? Probably seen a few, and you go, "Wow! Can't wait to get there. I want to go back and see that again." Well, see, God says that's just what I created. Wait till you see my creation in heaven and ultimately me. Jesus says you will see me as I am and be like me. We will have eyes that are glorious that will see him and his glory. Are you guys overwhelmed by this text? You know what? I got a feeling if I took this text into most churches, they would never ask me back. Thank you guys that you'll ask me back next week. (laughs) We are vessels of mercy, folks. Do you know that we are given mercy so that we can enjoy Him? Mercy itself is supremely pleasant to taste and know. The mercies of God every morning... Did you know that through mercy, every influence that has been worked on us was to bring us to Christ and then knowing Him more and more in our walk with Christ. It was His mercy. You know, by mercy, He means He didn't deserve it. And I'm giving something here to you that you do not deserve, right? Actually, it's saying you actually deserve hell. And I'm going to deliver you out of that. That's mercy. We know that grace is unmerited favor. The two go hand in hand, don't they? I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be awakened, to be regenerated. God, it was all you. And mercy itself will be supremely pleasant to taste and know, and it already is. Okay, we are vessels of mercy. And all are thinking about election and why we are saved and another one is not. We must continually focus on this. We do not deserve to be Christians. We do not deserve to be chosen or called or saved or transformed. We do not deserve to be heaven bound most certainly. It's all mercy. It's all undeserved. Oh, may believers hear this. This is humbling. We have nothing to brag about at all. You can say, oh, we're the elect. All right. No, you can't even go around saying, look at that. I'm elect because God did it. It wasn't because I did something. I said something. I walked an aisle. Matter of fact, do you know that even to unbelievers, this is hopeful? Because they might be unbelievers who are elect and they become saved, but they're not saved yet and they don't know they're elect. But it gives them hope. And we have the good news of hope, don't we? Nothing in us made a decisive influence on God to make it happen. It's all God. 
Do you see how this has taken it all away from us and it's all God, 100% God and not 1% us? It's all God. He did it. It's all mercy. Oh, may the glorious doctrine of unconditional election, election unto this mercy, never lead us to pride, to have a smug indifference to the perishing, but that we have a heart for those lost. We need to test ourselves to see where we are at that uh, by having mercy, we are to show mercy. It says that in Matthew 5-7 on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, so they be merciful. That they show mercy. We are given it by God, and we are expected to show that mercy on everybody. Mercy produces mercy and receives mercy. We become merciful by being shown mercy and we show mercy to obtain more mercy. Got some scriptures on that. Matthew 5, 7 we looked at and got some other ones where it shows the fruit of the Spirit. Mercy is all wrapped up in that, but that's how we were to act. The ultimate plan of God. Folks, we're getting ready to wrap this up now. Prepared beforehand for His glory. You remember way back in Romans 8, we were foreknown before the foundation of the world. We were predetermined, predestined, to become conformed to the very image of Christ, to be exactly like Jesus Christ. And so we we still have to think about this mercy. The elect by nature were sinners. Mercy is magnified. We were on the same plane as every other sinner. Men had no more claim upon God than did angels for mercy. You know, there's no saving angels. They were the elect angels and the ones who were not. Demons, Lucifer, Satan. God did that and He didn't die on a cross for them. And they longed to look upon this gospel that is seen through the prophets. Even the prophets didn't understand and the angels are longing to look at that because they never experienced the grace that we have. They never have experienced that mercy. You see, they didn't need that saving mercy. The demons that fell, the mercy was removed from them. Grace was removed from those angels, weren't they? It wasn't it. It was removed. They fell. There's sin. So out of the same lump of clay, others come from who do not see or love the glory of God. We come out of that same lump. If you see and savor the glory of God today, you didn't get to be that way on your own. You would have never thought of it. You never wanted it. You hated God. It says Romans 5, you were enemy sinners. Sometimes we are molded by God and shaped by God. That's what He's doing here in this, on this planet right now. Us. He's molding us. He's shaping us. He's the potter. And He's shaping us into the image of Christ. Honorable it is. You know, sometimes He not only shapes and molds us, He pounds into that vessel. (laughs) Have you felt the pounding? To know the glory of God. You know it right now. 
This word prepared beforehand simply underlines and emphasizes that our ability to see and savor the very glory of God is all because of His mercy. His purpose is to be known as glorious. He's to be treasured as glorious. We should treasure Him as the glorious one. To treasure the glory of God. To enjoy the glory of God. We will like we've never before. Paul said these riches are unimaginable. I have to take you to the Scripture real quick. 1 Corinthians 2.9. It's to the right of Romans a little bit further. 1 Corinthians 2.9. It's the next book over. Are you ready? This is great. He's talking about wisdom. He's talking about God's wisdom. Not the wisdom of all of the kings, the rulers of the age. Verse 8 says, "...the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood." For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, but just as it is written. Are you ready? Here it is. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. He's already giving it to us, and He's preparing us for the completion of it. Ultimately, this is the greatest Uh, Do you feel a passion? Do you pursue Him? If you're not pursuing Him now, I'm asking why not? Wouldn't it be foolish to turn down the greatest offer offer of glory to ever turn that down? Pursue Him. The word for wealth or riches or here it's saying in our Romans passage, the riches of His glory. You know what? The riches are unimaginable, as it said in that First Corinthians two nine. If you were to look at Ephesians, oh, that was uh, yeah, that was two nine. Ephesians two seven. He says those riches there are immeasurable. You might be going turning there. Go ahead, just just read that. In the coming ages, He will show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Are you willing to give up yourself now to what He's offering for the future? He says, repent. Come to Christ. Believe in Him. You know what? Because the riches of His glory will be infinite. You know what? It will take ages for us to know. It will take eternal ages to know these words fully. To know more fully the knowledge of the riches of the glory of God. And therefore, so will our joy. His mercies will be new every morning. There will not be one boring day in heaven. Not one day without fresh, awe-inspiring discovery. It's what life is about. It's discovering things where you've never been, things you've never done, things you've never seen, And we have eternity for that and to see God in all of His radiant glory. The thrill of new glories every moment. You say, how can I take that? It sounds like too much. When you have a glorified body, it just wants more. It'll just keep taking it all in. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that precious? What's God's great purpose? To make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand 
for glory. Vessels of mercy, you are prepared for this. For the riches of God's glory to glorify Him in the most ultimate way. This, folks, is what the Bible is about. It's about what everything is about. It's about who God is and everything in your life is about this one thing. I've got it on your title there. Supreme purpose of God. Vessels prepared for the riches of God's glory. You were made to know the glory of God. Let's pray. Great God, I don't know how to say enough thanks. It's beyond my understanding of what you have given us here today. But I know it's true. We've just touched on it and there's many areas that we can't even go. You don't even intend us to know right now we can't because we don't have glorified bodies. We never understand with this body. And so therefore, when we look to that day that you take us out of these bodies and bring us to you, in the meantime, you've given us great promises and it's already happening now. You said from one level of glory to another level of glory. I hope, Lord, that everybody here has gone to another level of understanding your glory just in this last hour, this last two hours, and we praised you. Thank you, Lord. You are certainly glorious. Amen.